So how are you, Elise? Oh, things are good. I was just listening to uh, you guys muse on about how people don't go to the office Mondays and Fridays, and it's it's happening everywhere. Uh, there is such a, a fight going on now between employers like Disney, like Amazon, that are trying to get people back in the office four to five days a week, and they're really having trouble. And there's just, uh, you know, the employees are fighting back. They don't want to go back. They don't want to deal with the traffic and the headaches. And there's really waterfall repercussions on a real estate level where you're seeing buildings in Chicago and other major cities go into foreclosure, be turned back to the banks because they simply don't have enough uh, tenants inside to keep them going. I wonder if it's the commute or the convenience of being at home. For instance, I was thinking, say, who's a major employer in Chicagoland? Uh, One of the banks or one of the Fortune 500 companies that's headquartered here. Chase. Chase has a big building downtown, right? Okay, but say they said to all their employees, all right, we're going to open up a satellite office in um, Palos and one in Naperville and one in Evanston, and now you can have a shorter commute. You may even live in those neighborhoods, but we still want people convening together in a shared space. Um, So you don't have to come downtown. But you, you still, we want you in an office. I wonder if anybody's thought about or tried that. You know? So let me ask you the reverse. So what happens if you're the employee and you do have a satellite office and you go in, but because everybody gets to pick the three days they're going to work from home, you're in the office, but you're the only one there and you spend most of your time on Zoom calls. What are you thinking to yourself? I think you're yeah. thinking, why aren't I home in my pajamas doing a Zoom call instead of at a satellite office where I'm by myself doing Zoom calls? Well, I think well, I was imagining you being in the office four or five days a week, you know. So, like, I'll meet you halfway. You don't want to make the commute downtown, and that's why people want to work from home. Okay, fine. Uh, how about we move the office out to where you live? Well, instead of a, an hour on the Eisenhower, door-to-door, you're now... 20 minutes because you live in Aurora and there's a place on the you know west side of Naperville or something, the east side of Naperville. Right. But what happens to the people who live in the North Shore? Do they have to drive then to Naperville or choose I have, downtown? I have, I have three offices. I have one on the north side, one on right. the west side, and one on <laughs> but, the south side. And then you're on Zoom calls with all these people in all these other offices. All those other offices. Oh, uh, so you're not actually getting that physical thing, which is really what I think companies feel is missing, that there's a glue to holding people together, you know, shared, even if it's just frustrations over what's being served in the cafeteria that day, right? Uh, But there's a shared sense of community or a shared sense of, of what's important to the business itself that's being lost in translation. And, And what I would say to you is if you look at your younger workers who are Gen Z millennials, they're so used to sitting in their rooms with headsets on that to them, it's absolutely the same thing as being in an office. The difference is control. And I think that business leaders are worried because they're a different generation, worried about that loss of control and what it means for the business down the line. Elise Link joins us on Mondays. We'll continue this conversation. She is the person behind the thinkglink.com website. You can sign up to read what she's writing at glink.substack.com. And she hosts uh, Sunday mornings with Tom Fortino here on WGN Radio. Uh, what's the name of that show, This Week in Wealth? This Week in Wealth, yeah. Elise Glink on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Elise, I think of you as a real estate expert. What with you being a real estate expert and all? <laughs> 
Sure. Uh, what, are, what are the trends? I know you've been following that. What's the latest? Well, you know, it's interesting. So many people during the pandemic moved. And I was on the phone this morning with uh, somebody I've known for a long time. And he was telling me how in 2021, they sold their place in Highland Park and he moved to a rental in Highland Park. And then he moved to a rental down in Rogers Park to be near one of his kids. And then he bought a house in Florida. And then he moved to out to California. And now they're moving back to Florida. Uh, so a lot of moving going on here. And it turns out that the most popular state people moved to was Florida. Um, and the state that people most often moved from is California, although Illinois is is up there as well. Uh, but interestingly, according to Clever Real Estate, uh, their data, 75% of Americans regret the moving that they've done. Why do people move to Florida so much? I think it's the taxes, maybe a little bit about the weather. Of course, not everybody's in love with hurricanes, but <laughs> there, are, there are a few other days in the year that they actually get nice sunny skies. It is the sunshine state. Um, so I think you get the weather, you get the taxes. And I think from the East Coast, a lot of people have moved down to Florida um, just you know, for a number of those reasons. Uh, convenience would be another one as well. Mm -hmm. I'm a little surprised that California is a state that people are exiting. Yeah, California has high taxes, and it is a very, very expensive place to yeah. buy a home. Yeah. And then Illinois, I guess I'm not surprised a lot of people leave. But, um, you know, I think also this may be the case with California and to some degree, Illinois, people are leaving the state, but they're also entering the state. Are we saying a net loss or gain here that um, Florida has the, the greatest net gain and California net loss? I think Florida does actually have the biggest net gain. I'm not sure if California has the biggest net loss, but they have the largest number of people um, who move. Uh, so the net migration would be how many people are moving to California because it maintain it is continues to be one of the top destinations that people want to move to. So, and for all the reasons that people love California, right? Beautiful, sunny weather also. Um, lots of, you know, they've got mountains and skiing, and there's all kinds of things that you can do there. Plus, there's a lot of um, business that's going there. So if you're in the technology world, for example, or if you're in entertainment, those are reasons to move down there. So uh, it is very interesting to take a look at. The other thing that's interesting about these moving statistics, John, is that people wish to a large degree, they had bought an even bigger house when they moved. And this may be part of the dissatisfaction, but 20% wish they had actually chosen a bigger home. I suppose people move for the weather or the taxes or whatever. Um, but I'll bet a lot of people move, especially in the last couple of years, because they just want to find a place that's less expensive to live. So if you don't like living in Chicago, you could move to Morris. You could move to... Uh, Mattoon, College Town, Central Illinois. Mm -hmm. You're still near family and friends. You can relate to the place, but it's a lot less expensive. Are people migrating that way as well? They are. They're also moving uh, just to more rural areas in general. And part of that was if you were in the city and you were renting, you wanted to rent a bigger place or you wanted to move out and buy a house in the suburbs. If you were in the suburbs, you wanted to move to a place with even less people around you. So with the pandemic, close proximity seemed to be the thing that people were moving away from. And it was relative. You know, people sort of upgraded one or two levels of, of being away from people to where they were. But 
you know, moving to a place like Boise, for example, out in the mountains, whatever, had its own issues. And now people, it's gotten so expensive there, people are moving from places like Boise or from places like Austin, Texas, uh, to places that are are less expensive and still um, moderately rural. I suppose there's a list out there of these kinds of places in Illinois. Now, what are the... (laughs) What I'll look towns? for next week. <laughs> well, right. So you've decided, really, the only real expensive place to live in Illinois is in the um, Chicago area, uh, maybe, what, Urbana, um, because of the University of Illinois, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, mm, much less. I'll bet, I'll bet that there's a quality of life that's pretty high and a cost of living, which, you know, impacts the quality of life that's pretty low. Uh, in in several places in Illinois, um, I I think that I saw the trends that you had posted. Uh, talk about the moving experience for people. Right. So you know, people are. It's it's really interesting. So a quarter of Americans moved from the city to the suburbs. This is what we were talking about. Thirty one percent of rural residents moved to suburban areas, so they wanted more people around them. Forty percent of Americans would prefer to live in a city if money were no object, which sort of, you know, is this idea that you want to live in a city, but, you know, it's it's too expensive. So you're going to have to choose something different. And then but if money were no object, people would prefer to move to L.A. and California overall. Um, migration data is showing people are moving out of Austin, Raleigh, and Orlando. I'm sorry, they're moving to cities like Austin, Texas, Raleigh, Durham, um, and Orlando, Florida. Orlando instead of Miami, for example, and that's a cost reason. So even within Florida, what you're seeing is that some of the bigger population areas have gotten so outrageously expensive you can't believe it. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the Palm Beach Airport, uh, in Palm Beach Airport, and I drove north to a place called Juno Beach. Four years ago, the house we stayed in, some friends are renting it, was sold for, I think, around four or $500,000. Today, with almost no upgrades to it, it the owner is going to put it on the market for over $2 million. Yeah. Did you were you the one that also was paying attention to the ten highest paying college majors, mm-hmm. or is that my next guest? Talk to me about that a little bit. You know, it's interesting um, when you look at the top uh, places that you or things that you can do. Overwhelmingly, all of them have either computer in the first part of the sentence or engineering. So chemical engineering, computer engineering, computer science, aerospace engineering, electrical engineering, clearly the STEM stuff is what's paying the big bucks. And when you graduate, the median salary within five years of graduation, so half the salaries are above, half below, for anything that has the word engineering in it is somewhere around $75,000. But that means that some people are making 50, sure, lots of people are making well into the six figures. Once you get to your mid-career, this continues to hold. All of these engineering majors and all these engineering jobs now pay well into the six figures just as a median amount, so half above, half below. Uh, and clearly, you know, people who are working for companies like Google, Amazon, Apple, you know, any of these, Microsoft, uh, they often have starting salaries around 130000 plus stock options, signing bonuses, free food, all that kind of stuff we've heard. Um, and it goes up from there. And so people are, 
you know, now reorienting themselves. If you've got any mathematical ability whatsoever, you're looking at an engineering degree of some sort because that's where the pay is really, really big. Hot new benefits that employers are bringing on to keep employees happy. Right. Stints and sabbaticals, daycare for your parents, <laughs> not your kids. Right. I, I'll tell you what, if you walk up and down the halls of WGN Radio, a lot of us are standing in each other's doorways going, so then my mom, people are talking about the care and maintenance of their senior citizen family members. That is such a new issue. Hyper-personalized benefits on-site counselors post-parental leave. Very interesting. Uh, Pete, we got to take a break here, don't we? At least, Glink, let's talk again on Monday, and we will listen to you and Tom Sunday morning at 7. Sounds good, John. Thank you. WGN Radio, the Trust Business Lunch continues now with Jane Notes, the president at WorkingNation.com's the website. Jane, welcome back to the show. How are you today? Hi, John. I'm great. Thanks for having me back. You know I love talking to you. I didn't know that, but I appreciate that. I've enjoyed our conversations. Although today is a day that a lot of folks aren't working, right? What with it being President's Day and all. Um, That's maybe, right. The lucky people have the day off. I, uh, it may be a good time to actually step back and talk about how people are working and what's happening at work. You were writing recently about something called agility or agility learning. What do I need to know about that? You know, I was so privileged, John, and honored to be part of LinkedIn Learning's report this year. And I think their report really came out with learning agility, just as you brought up. And that means real-time learning. So can I learn something quickly? Can I get certified in a new skill? That kind of gives me new opportunity, either with my current employer or maybe with a new employer. What's an example of what we're talking about? So easy, but, you know, you could easily say one is, is technology. You know, do you learn a new skill? Like, do you learn how to do something simple, like use an Excel spreadsheet so that you can move further in the data analytics aspect of your work? Or do you learn something about networking so you can actually help other people uh, use the technology that they have to use as part of their job? So I think, I think that's a really easy example. I think there are other things. You know, people in healthcare get new certifications all the time. Again, you know, sometimes around, uh, around technology. But think about somebody who's been, for instance, you know, a licensed practical nurse and really just can't physically take the job anymore. Employers offer lots of opportunities to move into billing and coding at the hospital. So if you do that quickly, you know, January and February is when the books change, the, the codings change for the federal programs. Great time to get that skill now so you can become a biller and coder instead of doing direct patient kinds of care, which is so hard physically. Well, is this a call to employers to offer those opportunities to employees? I think absolutely. In this time, and you know, we've been talking now for years, John, about the war for talent. If an employer really wants to keep a good worker and they know that that either that worker has aspirations to do something different 
or they see that technology may be making the workers' current job obsolete, that employer is really smart. If they invest in the employee, mostly if they do it on work time so they can do it as part of their work day mm-hmm. and not take on one more thing, that employer is going to keep that good employee for as long as they want to because that employee is going to believe that the employer has invested in them. Are those, are those opportunities lost when we are working from home? Well, you know, John, I, I think that the communication problem when you're a remote worker is is really getting noticed now. You know, they're seeing that if some people on the workplace are physically there and some aren't, the people that are physically there are learning about opportunities like growth opportunities, like learning, like advancement. All of their and the remote employees are not getting that information in real time. And sometimes they're getting the information so late that the opportunity's gone. Yeah, I guess in a way you ought to be able to accomplish that even remotely. Hey, pick up a skill or, hey, I see you're doing this, so maybe you could do that. Let's get you online and get you trained in that way. But um, there's just something about the human interaction, about the bumping into people, literally or rhetorically, where it seems to me like those opportunities would avail themselves more to people who are physically in the office, physically at school, physically at the workplace together. I totally agree with you. I mean, you were just talking in your last segment about how people go from room to room talking about their parents' needs and things like that. I think it's exactly the same that people go across and say, look, there's new opportunities in this unit of our employer, and it never gets posted anywhere. It's purely word of mouth. And if you're working diligently at home, you know, you're not going to hear those opportunities. By the way, a moment ago when we were talking to Elise Glink, we were talking about the careers that pay well. And she said, if you have the word engineer or computer in your job description, you graduate with $75,000 jobs. And after a few years, you're making six figures. 815 texted in to say, I make six figures as a Caterpillar field service mechanic. Do not discount the blue collar field. Those jobs are always in demand. Engineers come and go. I don't know that engineers are going to go, but uh, I think we uh, are are negligent if we don't remind people about the opportunities in the skilled trades. Oh, John, absolutely. You know, there's a new term coming into vogue called deskless workers, you know, so that people start to uh-huh. think about people who don't sit in an office. I love the term. I uh, do too. But you think about what people can make as welders. In the, in the building trades, what they can make, even delivering. I mean, working in a factory, I mean, CNC machinists, it's unbelievable. These are craftspeople. These are really talented people, and they are more than not making six figures. They have also the opportunity when they want it to do overtime, and that doesn't happen in a lot of jobs. That's such a nice phrase, deskless workers, because white-collar workers, I think we imagine, have college educations, which makes them smart, and therefore, if you don't, you're not. And we all know that's not true. We also know that we desperately need those skilled trades, either in our homes or to make the machines that power America. But blue-collar, I think, has a certain um, connotation that isn't all, all that positive. I agree with that. I'm going to use deskless all the time now because you know what? It's a hybrid. 
So you have factory workers and, you know, you have delivery people and retail people, but you also have nurses and teachers and pilots. You know, you think of all the people who do these amazing <laughs> jobs that that have varying degrees of education. I think it's much less stigmatizing than blue collar and much less elitist than white collar. There's a story in the New York Times, uh, and actually it's Bloomberg. Remote work is costing Manhattan, <clears throat> excuse me, more than $12 billion a year. And in that article, they mentioned some statistics about Chicago as well. I want to ask you about this in just a minute. Stay right there. Jay Notes from Working Nation. Let's continue on the Wintrust Business Lunch with more business news and Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Illinois-based Abbott Labs is facing a second federal investigation for its role in the baby formula shortage. The company says it's being investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Trade Commission. Both agencies are looking into whether the company engaged in anti-competitive conduct. Abbott shut down one of its facilities last year due to contamination. The resulting baby formula shortage forced the government to buy formula from other countries. The Justice Department's investigating the contamination issue at Abbott's plant in Sturgis, Michigan. A logistics company has announced plans to open its first Chicago office at the redeveloped Marshall Field Building in the Loop. Cranes reports Indianapolis-based Spot has leased 31,000 square feet at 24 East Washington, above the Macy's store there. The company will occupy newly built space on the 11th floor by the end of the year. The company also has plans to hire 200 workers in Chicago over the next two years. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Here's the business of food and Steve Alexander. Thank you, and we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. Years ago, one of our former colleagues here at the Blowtorch spent his spare time driving around the city to bagel shops and collecting unsold bagels, and then he would drop them off at food pantries. On a much larger scale, that's kind of what the 44 Mariano's stores in our area are doing to limit the amount of food that is getting wasted and also to fight food insecurity. Just think about all the food in those stores. Not all of it is going to get sold. Correct. Whether it's uh, meat and seafood, whether it's dairy, whether it's a bakery item. That is Amanda Puck of Mariano's who says the stores have turned saving food and getting it donated to food pantries into a contest. A zero hero contest each quarter to see which store can rescue the most food and donate it to either the Northern Illinois Food Bank or the Greater Chicago Food Depository. And the most recent Zero Hero winner is Mariano's Northfield Store. They donated over 5,300 pounds of food, which translates into about 4,500 meals to members of the community in Northfield. And it does not happen by accident. It's really the teamwork. It's how they all work together. It's how they're storing things properly, saving things properly, making sure it gets, you know, onto the agency truck uh, to go to the destination. So it really, it really is a team effort and it takes a lot of coordination. So what does the winning Northfield store get? They get to be recognized, which they love. Our stores are very competitive. So it's fun for them, you know, to be the best in a category. And we do something fun for the store, provide a lunch and, and celebrate with them. And then they're actually the store will be gifting the um, Northfield Food Pantry with a two thousand dollar grant. Nice. And there's another part of the program. And the zero waste part, we try to prevent as much waste from going into the landfill as possible. So whatever we could do to recycle, reuse, even if it's marked down to a customer before the expiration, but we really try to manage, you know, what that output looks like. You know, obviously want the world to be a better place like everybody else. Congratulations to the zero heroes at Mariano's in Northfield. 
You know, there's another Chicago food hero who needs to be recognized. In fact, there ought to be a statue in her honor. Her name is Gertrude Snodgrass, and her story tomorrow. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Jane, by the way, tell us about Working Nation, those who haven't heard you on WGN before. What do you all do? We are a nonprofit media entity that tells the stories, all varied stories of the uh, the journey from education to work, back to education, and we're big on lifelong learning. So visit us on our website, please, WorkingNation.com. We'd love to hear your story. You're not specific about women or men, minorities, or any other subcultures or classes in the work world. We are not. We're not. We don't. We we take people from their journey as teenagers out of high school if they want to go right to work through post secondary education, and we love to do stories about older workers, people who are past what is traditional retirement age, who want to reinvent themselves and find something new to do. I've heard from people who have been laid off. Or think of all the reasons that people quit working during the pandemic. They quit, their business shut down, et cetera, et cetera, who have had trouble finding comparable, meaningful, or well-compensated work coming back. What do you make of that? You know, I think it's true. I think the world of work is changing so fast, John, that it's hard to keep up with it. You know, so I but I do think people need to look Uh, and I think we've talked about this before, at their transferable skills. If there's not a job in what you used to do, think about the skills you learned in that job and where those skills may be put to good use in a different sector. So if you got laid off from banking, look at healthcare. If you got laid off from healthcare, look at education. You know, always good opportunities for people who have work history, who have skills, and who have the desire to keep working. Is there less job hopping now? Are people settling in more? You know, the official numbers make it look like, you know, quits and resignations are about uh, where they have been since October or November. But I get a sense that people are settling into where they are, uh, really looking at opportunities from within. What we were talking about in the last segment, you know, more and more employers really looking at reskilling their workers that they know are loyal, that know, love their brand, and they want to put them in growth jobs in that same company. Reskilling. That's that opportunity for learning that we were talking about. I also saw a statistic about the amount of money that is being lost by big cities, New York and Chicago, the amount of money generated by an employee in a downtown in a major uh, metropolitan area like New York, San Francisco, Washington, Chicago, etc. It's pretty impressive still. Have you seen some of those numbers? Yeah, look, I think that Bloomberg report was was both enlightening and scary. And who more than Mike, Mike Bloomberg loves cities, right? He's a city guy. But you think about it. I mean, from the, bur- the very basic kind of city stuff, like revenue, but you also look at tolls. You look at the way uh, people aren't taking public transportation. You know, so the costs are going to go up for those people that are continuing to take it if they don't get the volume back. And then, of course, all the things we all care about. You know me, I care about food. All those great mom-and-pop restaurants that have gone under in big cities. We need to do something to bring back our cities because we love them. And, you know, we can't have healthy economic growth in states without the cities being at the center of that. 
we are going to vote for the next mayor of Chicago, be it the current one or a new one, a week from tomorrow. The, voting's, the voting will end. And the big question for the candidates is how do we get employees to come back downtown? Right now, Chicago is losing $2,300 in annual spending per employee downtown. Wow. New York, it's over $4,000. And I don't know if you have any advice for these candidates, but what do we do to get businesses back in the city? What do we do to get employees back in the city? Well, you know, I think employers have to get really creative with hybrid work, you know, figuring out ways to bring employees back a few days a week and bringing back employees for a good reason. You know, again, connecting to our last segment and what we've been talking about throughout, how do we bring them back to learn new skills? And those new skills can be lots of things that are uh, that you were not thinking of. You know, they can be project management. They don't all have to be technology. But I think the other way, and this is going to sound weird to some of your listeners, but I think bringing back employees to do service projects in the city, you know, to work. I was so moved by that Mariano's piece, what they're doing to help feed people who are hungry. But think about employers who get creative and say, you know what, we're going to come back one day a week and half that day we're going to give service to our communities. We're going to go and worry about the learning loss in our elementary and secondary schools. We're going to mentor people. I think, you know, especially in the Midwest, you know, I'm an East Coast girl, but I love the Midwest because I think the core values of Midwesterners is unparalleled in the country. I think that's how you get people back to work in Chicago. You say, we want to rebuild our communities and we want you to help us do it one person at a time. I kind of like the idea, too, of carving out half a day a week. Service is nice. But what about saying, and on that half day from 9 to noon, we're going to train you in a job skill you don't have. We're going to show you what the next job looks like. And that has to take place downtown or wherever the office is, right? That's right. That's right. Hey, hey John, maybe you should be running for mayor. I love that idea. Oh, uh, not only am I not (laughs) smart enough to be mayor, I am smart enough not to run for mayor. I wonder why anybody (laughs) would want to be the job Uh, would want the job of mayor of New York City or Chicago or Peoria. I mean, it doesn't pay that well, and it's thankless. I think the task of making cities safe and getting people to believe that and then getting them downtown again is, is a challenge no mayor has ever seen before. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. And keeping people healthy and safe while they're doing it. You know, really challenging. Jane, it's always nice to talk to you. I'm sorry that you agreed with me so quickly on me not being smart enough to do something like that, but I understand. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, I think you're smart enough for anything, John. You know I love you and love being on your show. Thanks so much. Jane Oates from WorkingNation.com. WorkingNation.com.